Hi, I'm Pat Foran. Welcome to Get Labeled Indie Music Roadmap, a podcast for working indie artists, aspiring music artists, and fans. Each week, I interview a different guest who has a proven track record in the biz or related field. I talk with producers, promoters, audio engineers, managers, songwriters, bands, social media experts, veteran and novice artists too, about their experiences and recommendations. I'll get answers to some of the hows and whys of today's music business, which you will find invaluable in navigating the chaotic world of today's music industry. Today's guest is multi-award-winning songwriter, musician, and producer, Trey Bruce. Let's get going. Hey, Pat. Hey, how's it going? Hey, man, it's good. What about you? <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty good here. <laughs> great man where are you i'm in exactly. new jersey what part um near trenton i'm between new york and philly so what we got up today <laughs> well um i host uh this uh indie music podcast um <laughs> trying to help people um you know up-and-coming artists and actually people who maybe have been in the industry for a while um, find their way a little more clearly or, you know, give them uh, some pointers. Yeah. And, um, and I saw your profile on um, uh, LinkedIn. Right. And I thought I didn't really read through the whole thing, but I saw that you're an independent songwriter and I'm like, well, let's, let's give this man a shot. And um and then, of course, I dug into your profile a little more, and I was pretty impressed <laughs> by uh, your uh, wins and you know your um, success. Good. Yeah. Well, I've been lucky. I've had a couple good runs, <clears throat> um, and uh, you know, each each uh, section of the music business led me to another space in the music business, to another space, and. Um, and I'm still evolving. I'm still jumping into what's next. So I stay busy. Cool. I mean, um, I personally, I like to, um, well, I reach for the next thing. So I'm constantly reaching for, you know, well, many songwriters, you're reaching for the next song. I may not be reaching for the next song or I'm reaching for the next song, but I might be reaching for a different sound or a different type of song that I haven't done before. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it's cool. Um, sounds like you might be doing something like that. Or um, I was on your website and I saw you had like multiple recordings of um, different artists. And um, I think one song caught my attention probably because I'm a guitarist and uh Wasted Heart. Wasted Heart. Um, is that Duff McKagan? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just probably because of the, uh, maybe the guitar sound, like um, it just kind of caught my attention. And you have a lot of stuff up there, so it's, it's, all, it's all really good. Um, and... Um, so and I also see that you have different, different sounds, different uh, sounding music. 
So you're not just, you know, one trick pony and, you know, well, which I, is, I write, which is fine, right? <laughs> I write songs that are, um, uh, that are in, you know, I write a lot with artists, so they're in different genres. So, um, what they end up sounding like is up to them and their producer. If I'm not the producer on a project, but um, I mean, even I don't think Duff and I, we've written a lot of songs, but we've never written with an electric guitar. We always write with an acoustic. Okay. Um, so the sound in the room sounds like two songwriters just writing a song. And then when, um, if I do something with them, I may go in a film and TV way and Duff, he always goes in what to the direction of whatever record he's making at the time. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so for me, um, I, I think a song is just a lyric and a melody. It's not a kick drum sound. Hmm. It's not a guitar sound. Or, um, <clears throat> so in that case, in most cases, before the song starts going to a genre, uh, I have a song. And as soon as you start adding a kick drum or the, the first or second instrument, you're starting to tell what genre it's going to. Um, with a few exceptions of when a lyric is just stamped in a certain genre, um, because different genres are still the English language is still 26 letters and we still have the same emotions to talk about, but uh, we use a different dialect in each genre, whether it's hip hop, R&B, country, uh, you know, uh, alternative, indie, all of them have a different version of the English language. And, uh, but most of them will translate in any genre, depending on how you record the, the structure. Yeah. I mean, when I first started songwriting and I was looking for guidance, uh, I remember, I don't remember who, <clears throat> who I heard it from first or what quote I read, but it was about, uh, a good song is going to be a good song in multiple genres or, or could be in multiple, multiple genres. Right. right. So it's going to work. And that's, you know, you're alluding to that a little bit. Uh, yeah. We hear that in, in film and TV a lot now, especially on shows like Grey's Anatomy where um, the, the person singing the song is an artist. And in most cases, a lot of people probably haven't heard of and they get, okay. 15 or 20 seconds into it and they realize it's a police song or uh, <laughs> uh, an Alanis Morissette song that's been redone by someone else. But when they redo it, they don't emulate the original record. They do their own version of it. So it makes it sometimes undistinguishable or you don't really recognize it until you hear the title go by. Um, so those kinds of repurposes are really common uh, these days. Um, and, you know, it's a it's sometimes the only way artists will let you do their song is if you repurpose it. OK. OK, that kind of makes sense. But, um, but in a catalog like mine or yours, we, we have a lot of songs that no one's heard. And I pull different versions of songs all the time. I'll cut it one way with a band or program it uh, as a pop track. And then I'll turn around and do um, a string quartet and uh wow. an out of tune upright piano and just completely check and gender and everything hmm. that's interesting <laughs> yeah um so um for 
Well, I'm, I'm trying to get into sync myself. Um, um, I'm in a bunch of different groups that, you know, we're, we're all, some people are getting some successes. Um, I'm a little behind because I'm, um, I started doing my own production like about a year ago. I, you know, I'd worked with doll, you know, different dolls over the years, but I was never really good at, uh, the engineering side. And, um, so it was kind of frustrating on the, on the mix down and the, you know, the mix down. Um, but you know, so I've been working on that the past year and, um, I'm getting ready to put some, well, I'm going to release a few tunes this summer. Um, and, uh, like some of those are going to be like on more on my artist side. And then I'm going to have some music that's really, that I'm really trying to push towards sync, the sync side. Um, which is probably going to be different, you know, different than what I do normally. Um, so I was just wondering, like, I know one way might be like, you're saying like, take a cover song and repurpose it. So let's say, um, you mentioned the police. I mean, is that, is it possible to do a police song, uh, to, to cover a police song in sync? Yeah. All you have to do is request a license from the publisher. Okay. Cause um, I had heard that some, uh, artists aren't, you know, willing to do that. Some uh, aren't, but okay. boy, um, look up, just, you know, you do, you can just go down a rabbit hole looking at, uh, big songs that have been repurposed on, um, YouTube. I mean, you could look up, um, police songs, police song covers, Guns N' Roses covers, Richard Marks covers, <laughs> and you're just going to, you're going to find tons of covers of everybody. Um, in some instances, they might slip under the radar, but most people you call and ask for a license and they grant it. Uh, they'll ask some questions. Um, there's uh, some people will say, yes, but you have to change gender or you have to, you can't do it just like the record or whatever. Everybody has their own thing, but once a song's been cut, man, you're going to find a zillion versions of it out there. Cool. Yeah. Well, I've noticed that. I mean, I was wondering how that happened because, um, I'd heard to the, I'd heard information to the contrary that it's harder. Well, it's look hard. up the definitions of compulsory license and statutory license. That'll tell you which ones are available and which ones aren't. Um, uh, I mean, that's the, that's the best way that I can tell. Um, going back to another point, you mentioned um, the engineering part. Um, I've been doing this for years, years and years, and I will not mix now. And I've got a pretty <laughs> good idea of where things go, what they should sound like, um, how far I want things panned, depending on what kind of song it is. But at the same time, I don't have my ears don't have the patience for it or the uh, finite listening math that an engineer's ears have. Um, and of course, I came up in a time where writers write, um, producers produce, and they don't mix. Mix engineers mix and they don't master. Mastering engineers master. And in the climate we're in, because you write, you are a producer that's the general rule. It's obviously not true, 
but because you have a computer and a $500 uh, software pack doesn't make you a mix engineer. And it definitely doesn't make you a mastering engineer. So (laughs) those pieces I don't touch. I don't touch mixing. I don't touch mastering. So I know up front, I'm always going to be hiring someone to do that piece on every song. Um, uh, I'm not about to approach mixing because I can spend two days or two hours or two weeks on one and they only get worse. And at the end, I'm frustrated and I would not play anything other than a great sounding mix for anybody. Um, People don't hear rough mixes. Um, Even the people that are supposed to be able to, like record A&R, they're supposed to be able to hear through a rough mix. I won't play a rough mix for them. Hmm. I find that that, uh, self-defeating in a way (laughs) to, to play a rough mix, you know. Well, it, it, they, sometimes they get herd bound. They fall in love with the rough mix and they have, then they have demo love. Uh, and then when you give them the record, they go, oh, I really miss this and that. And I'll go, well, that wasn't right. That was just because it was out of whack, you know. <laughs> yeah, what happened? <laughs> yeah. They like, they like the other one, the other version. Um, yeah, I mean, that's very, that's very interesting. That's great information, man. Um, so, um Let's uh, dig in a little bit here with, um, I had read that um, in your bio, you have, uh, I guess you moved to Nashville around 1990. Right. Um, Well, I moved here in in 86 from Memphis. From Memphis. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And um, well, I had uh, considered, you know, trying Nashville a few times, but uh, I was kind of New York centric and, you know, had some like um, music contacts in New York and uh, but um, my thing was always uh, getting a good demo. So I had raised the fa- started raising a family around that time. And um, so, you know, I had to like focus on, you know, right. putting, putting food on the table and so right. on and so forth, which I was, you know, I wasn't in a position to make, I mean, I was playing in bands and stuff and I, and I did have, um, opportunities to play in like wedding bands and things like that to you know which was more steady income but um i didn't want to do that because i felt it was going to interfere with my own music and um but of course you know a steady job working overtime that interferes with your music too so (laughs) you gotta pick your uh you know your passion i guess and try and stick with that so um, it's a really tough position and most of it most of us, we all have to, if we have that, if those are the choices, we have to make a decision. And sometimes we find we made the right one, but we can't ever really know for years if we made the right one. I, as um, I came to, from here, from Memphis in, uh, in 86, and I got my publishing deal in 89. So it was a re- relatively quick flip for me. Um, and I reached back to some Memphis cats and said, man, you got to move up here. This is the deal. <laughs> and, um, and two of my buddies moved up here. Um, they hit it out of the park. One of wow. the biggest session drummers in Nashville in the last uh, 25 years um, is here. Cause I, cause I was one of the guys that called him and then uh, another big songwriter. 
And then there was a, a really great guitar player from Memphis that I invited up. He came up and played on a couple sessions, but he got pitched a gig at Nike in Memphis at the same time. And he's starting his family. And he went, man, I'm going to have to take this gig. Well, he's retired now. <laughs> Nike treated him really well, but, uh, and he still plays music. Um, nice, you nice. know, takes his family on vacations anytime he wants. Wow. And that's the life he chose. And um, it's much more stable than the one we all chose. Uh, and you just have to weigh that out when it's over or ignore it and don't weigh it out because sometimes yeah. it can be painful. <laughs> yeah. And there's, you know, there's a guarantee if you work for a man that you get a paycheck um, as long as you work for him. And then there's a guarantee you can come here and work on your art, whether it's playing drums, writing songs or producing records or photography or painting or anything else and starve until uh, someone thinks what you do is good enough to pay you for it. Hmm. And um, because you make art doesn't mean that you are guaranteed a, an income, but if you just go to work for someone who's going to pay you every week, you're guaranteed that income. And it's, that's a big thing. And it's hard for some people to um, take that gamble. Obviously. Yeah. It's, it's a, um, there's a big gap there or, or potentially big gap. Um, yeah. It's a certain kind of person that can, uh, I mean, I wasn't a singer and I wasn't a guitar player. I was a rock drummer, oh, but wow. I wanted to, but I was writing bad songs in Memphis. So I thought, well, uh, <laughs> and I'm a rock kid. I didn't listen to country music. All I liked was rock music and that's all I listened to and played. Um, with exception of the R and B that you get by being from Memphis and growing up there. And so when I moved here, I moved here with a bread truck full of drums and, and, uh, you know, th three years later I had a publishing deal writing country music. Wow. That's what I came here to do. And, um, I wasn't playing the bluebird or anywhere cause I couldn't sing and I was a terrible guitar player. Um, so my, my, my bet, I was betting on 1%. Um, and that's a foolish man's bet. You shouldn't bet when there's a 1% chance. However, I've accidentally done that. I wasn't doing it on purpose, but on year four, I did it again on year 10. I did it again. And I keep, I just, because I'm betting on myself, I know that I will get up early. I know that I will show up on time and I will stay late and I will dig and claw to find out what I need to find out. And so when someone presents me with an opportunity, I go, wow, is there a 50% chance I can pull this off? How about a 40? I can get down to the bottom and go, yeah, I'm a rock drummer from Memphis. I think I'll go write country songs in Nashville and be successful at it. <laughs> Man, that was a, that was a far reach. Yeah. Far reach. <clears throat> well, did you, um, were you getting gigs like drumming gigs at all? Or how did you, what did you do when you first got there? Well, I played drums all the time and for a living uh, a lot okay. in Memphis. Um, and it was in various bands. We did original music and stuff. Um, but in Nashville, uh, you couldn't really make money playing clubs. Uh, here, the, the club scene wasn't as big in Nashville as it was in Memphis at the time. Hmm. And um, 
so, you know, I got in a band immediately. It was kind of a, a rock funk fusion type of thing, which fit me really well. And I had a lot of fun at it. And the singer, a friend of his that he'd written a few songs with was the house engineer at universal music publishing. Hmm. And so he told him that his drummer had a couple of country songs and could he try to get him a meeting? And fortunately that guy was nice enough to my singer to do it. And that's how I got my first publishing deal. Wow. Um, me twisting one guy's arm or twisted another guy's arm. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't stay busy on drums like I was in Memphis. Um, so, and I was trying to learn how to play guitar to be a writer. So, you know, yeah, well that's, it's pretty cool. It's a great story. Um, thanks. Well, how'd you get started in music? I mean, most people I talk to, well, it varies. But I mean, it's usually at a younger age and um, uh, I just met somebody who started later than me. <laughs> I started at around, I started on guitar around 11. Um, I wasn't allowed to have a guitar way back. And uh, so um, I think that other person, I think they started like when they were like 14 or something. Yeah. So um, what, how, how did you get started? Like, what was that like? Um, the environment. Well, I got drums in about the fourth grade. Okay. Um, so I was real interested in, um, I already really liked the Beatles a lot, even before I started first grade. And, um, um, I just, I was just listening to handfuls of records. It wasn't a big wide variety and I liked music and I listened to radio and, um, in about the fourth or fifth grade, I got drums and I started thinking I was more serious about it. And I'd play drums along with the stereo in my room. Um, and it was, uh, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, <laughs> but in the, uh, about the, um, in the sixth grade, I saw a black Sabbath at the Overton park shell, um, touring the, uh, the paranoid album. And, um, I just fell in love with that. And, uh, some older kids, some teenagers down the street bought the album and they played it for me. And then I managed to get to go see them play when I was in the sixth grade. Wow. And, um, so I became a heavy, heavy rock head, um, a big David Bowie, loved David Bowie. Um, the big records for me were Ziggy Stardust, Houses of the Holy, uh, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, um, Trace on Brace, um, uh, The Best of Cream. I, I just just started listening to the things I liked listening to. And then um, and then I became a huge rush head in high school <laughs> once my brain developed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I remain massive fans of all those artists today. I saw the last two rush tours, wow. you know, um, I'm still uh, an audiophile and a fan. Hell, I went to see sting last night. Um, uh, so I, I just became every kind of, I just became a rock kid. And, uh, when I decided it was time to move to Nashville, um, it was, I was too old. I was, 26. I should have left earlier. Um, but I just kept 
plodding it out in clubs in Memphis. We'd have one set for Midtown. We'd have another set for downtown. We'd have another set for North Memphis where the rock bars were. And then we have a college set. We play colleges and we'd always record original music on the side and hope for the best. But at some point, you know, I started going, this is not going to happen. <laughs> and I really want to be a writer now and I can't afford to get to LA or New York and Nashville's just up the road. So I came here. Well, not too shabby. <laughs> yeah. Nashville's a pretty good place to write some music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was awesome. So how did you get into songwriting? I mean, what, what sparked that? Um, um, I think, um, I was, you know, reading lyrics on album covers and, when I was listening to the music, I would look at the pictures and listen, but um, I just started reading the words. And I think um, I bought a record one time. Uh, Willie Nelson sings Christofferson. And I, I've owned that record in several formats um, because I really love the way Chris Christofferson wrote. Uh, yeah, it wasn't right. like anything I was hearing on country radio other than the songs that he was writing that were getting on country radio, like me and Bobby McGee, uh, Sunday morning coming down. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Just amazingly different. Yeah. And then, um, so I moved to Nashville and in the first year or so I bought, um, tunnel of love by Springsteen. Okay. And that was kind of my Bible to get me from Memphis to Nashville because uh, of being a rush and a Sabbath head and David Bowie, none of those things I learned about songwriting was going to carry me to radio in Nashville on mainstream country. Okay. But Springsteen's tunnel love record made all the sense in the world to me. He was writing weird country like Christofferson was. He was writing with metaphors and um, a little bit highbrow in a way and man i could not get enough of that record and um and i still can't and it <laughs> it really it really gave me a foundation to bridge the twenty thousand miles from nashville to memphis i mean memphis to nashville well because it's really only 200 but boy from a music <laughs> standpoint when you're a teenager it's a long way yeah and then after that i just uh, I hit, I hit one. Um, I got that music publishing deal at, at MCA and I had a, a hit each year of my publishing deal. And the third year was the year I got my first Randy Travis cut and it, it went number one. So I had a wow. diamond reel cut, um, another cut. And I can't think of the name, which one it uh, was. Leroy Parnell. Yeah, that was after MCA, though. That first deal, when I still could not tune a guitar, I was just <laughs> writing words that people liked. Um, I had a hit every year, and I can't think oh. of what the one is. But the third one was the last year I was at MCA, and it was Look Heart No Hands for Randy Travis. <laughs> and when that went number one, it got my phone ringing in Nashville pretty good from other managers and producers wanting to – uh, so a guy named Scott Hendricks, who produced Leroy Parnell and Restless Heart and Alan Jackson and Brooks and Dunn, called me and said, hey, man, every publisher in town wants me to start a publishing company. I think if I can get you, I'll start one. And so 
I didn't know Scott. I'd met him one time. And when he offered me this proposition, he said, let me know tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> well, MCA was getting the, a deal together because they wanted me to stay for another four or five years. Okay. And I was having my first number one hit right then. And the next day I went to Scott's office and went, you know what? I'll jump. And so I left a corporate publishing deal to write with a guy who didn't have a publishing company, but he was going to get one. <laughs> and, um, another and he, high, another, uh, yeah, percentage. <laughs> and what we did is we, we signed a deal with Warner chapel. They were our, um, our mothership and we were the satellite company, a subsidiary, uh, which meant Warner Chapel paid all the money Scott needed to run our little company called Big Tractor Music. And um, the first song I turned in, I'd written by myself and we pitched it to Randy Travis and he cut it and it went number one. So again, wow. I've got a number one song the first year of my new publishing company <laughs> and I wrote it alone. And now it's my second cut on Randy Travis. Wow. And Garth Brooks was beating the door down, showing up at the office, calling me on the phone, saying, I want that song. And I said, Randy Travis, I told him he could have it, shook his hand. Uh, and in Nashville, shaking a hand is called just putting the song on hold. So I say, you can have the song on hold. No money exchanges hands. You don't even have to see the guy. You just say, okay, I won't play it for anybody for that much time. Well, Garth heard it and wanted it and even told me, he goes, you know how much money you'll make different if I cut it and not Randy Travis. So I said, yeah, but I just had my first number one on Randy Travis last year and <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good about honoring my handshake. And so that wasn't the last number one I had on Randy Travis. I had uh, a couple more. Wow. As a result. And, um, you know, that, that that's powerful to me because he cut some of the songs that I couldn't give away to most people. He cut one of mine called Spirit of a Boy, Wisdom of a Man. The song was nine years old when he cut it. And oh. I couldn't, and I pitched it a million times. Hmm. And Randy, through a certain time in my life as a writer, I was saying things that Randy wanted to say. And that was when artists believed that they were artistic the artistic move was to make the world think that was their story where right now young artists think if they don't write it, then they can't be, it can't mean anything to them. And that, that would be like Meryl Streep having to live every script she ever acted <laughs> because she can't, it doesn't mean the same to her if she doesn't act it. Yeah, well, yeah. that's crazy. George Strait had over 50 number ones. He didn't write any of them but he made you believe he did. Yeah. That's powerful. That's artistic. Yeah. That's so, uh, so what you just, kids think today is not true. <laughs> we just said a whole heck of a lot here. Um, that's pretty powerful. Um, great story again, you know, more, more good stuff. Um, I think I would like to maybe talk to you about songwriting sometime maybe go through if you're, if you're up for it and another time, maybe do another segment on the uh, song, the song, your song process and this and that. Okay. Uh, yeah. That, that'd be pretty interesting. Well, I yeah. find you, I find you interesting too, because um, usually like, 
I mean, it's not everybody, but a lot of times when I meet people, you know, if they're into hard rock, that's all, that's all they like. Um, or they're, it's, it's, you know, just slight, they'll cross over slight boundaries around the music that they do. I mean, I personally, I listen to all kinds of stuff. I, my dad listened to country music. He listened to all kinds of music, but one of it was country music. So I grew up listening. I, I didn't like country music at first, but, um, but in the meantime, I did like Chris Christopherson. Um, cause I was kind of young when I wanted to be a songwriter. I think I was about eight. I told somebody I wanted to write songs. And of course, where I live is a blue collar town. First off, you couldn't be a musician and be taken seriously. <laughs> and then on top of that, to be a songwriter, like writing a song and having somebody else record it for you, that's even farther, right? From, uh -huh. from reality in this in this area where i grew up but um anyway so like you said you know you have to get to nashville new york um la <clears throat> but um what was my point my point was <laughs> that you know some people don't venture far out of their out right. of their uh main you know likes you know music likes so I, I find that interesting that you were like black sabbath and that you also listen to uh, Elton John, um, even though Elton John, you know, was huge. Uh, I mean, he's still a big artist. And I listened I mean, to those at the same time. I was I was in about the seventh or eighth grade when I got an eight track from my room, an eight track player. Yeah, and um, and um, <clears throat> I had a couple of Mountain eight tracks. Houses of Holy, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and Ziggy Stardust, and and um, uh, a couple of Black Sabbath. Well, I have all of those Black Sabbath records, but um, and then later Rush. But those things were in constant rotation all the time. <laughs> and there was something about Elton John's lyrics and the and the melodies. Man, they they were just it was just dynamically emotional for me. And the fact that it wasn't, um, there was no real pattern. It was, you know, he could change time signatures or drop the beat or add something and just do anything, a lot like um, David Bowie. Okay. Because uh, for three or four albums, Bowie was kind of the same. And he was, um, you know, like uh, Starman, you know, right in the middle of the song. Everything goes away except for an acoustic bum, 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 bum. Where did that come from? <laughs> I don't know, but I loved it. And even though I didn't understand what Bowie was writing about in a lot of cases at 13, I knew he was writing about something important. And it felt like he was um, championing some little man, like he was pulling for somebody or some society that I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. And that he was trying to spread goodwill where there was none. And, um, and that just spoke to me in a way I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I just knew that I really loved it. And his melodies were brilliant back in the Z Stardust days. Those things were insane. Well, and, um, uh, you worked for MCA, right? You, you, yeah. as a, as a song songwriter. Um, well, one of my favorite bands was uh, Leonard Skinner. You mentioned, right. MCA. So I immediately thought of that. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I just think, 
I mean, I'm not going to overgeneralize here, but, um, you know, music is a little different today. Um, and you know, than it was like in the seventies. Um, and I kind of feel like you, you kind of mentioned it or it's probably in that ballpark where artists today, like you said, they want to write their own music. Um, you know, maybe that has a little money, um, factor to it too. Like I own, you know, I am the sole, well, the sole proprietor, right? So I, it's my wares that you're, that that's happening and that, um, that you're listening to. Um, you know, I think that's an obvious play. And I think in the beginning, it probably was for a bunch of writers or a bunch of artists to go, you have to write on my record so I can make more money. But that has washed out in the last couple of years. Oh, that's true. The the new Dirks Bentley number one is called Beers on Me. There's 10 <laughs> writers. Yeah. So nobody's making any money yeah. on it. And I think it's I think it's more of uh it's just lazy songwriting. And um it's just copy and paste songwriting to the point that um Again, why it takes 10 people to plagiarize themselves, I don't know. But <laughs> it it um it could have been what you talked about at first, that people just wanting to make a little more money. And that's usually based on a manager. A manager goes, Hey, you gotta start writing with some more of these writers so you can start cashing in on that publishing money, the mailbox money. And um, and that definitely was part of it when that became so apparent that that's where it was going. Um, but you can't do that for more money and then split it with five or six or 10 more people. Yeah. Um, That's so that waters down that theory and which leads it just to ego, just to ego to be on as many songs as you can be self-fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Even Um, if it, even if you're one of 10 people on a song that, um, you know, a talented 14 year old could write. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, uh, there's different, there's lots of ego in music. There's lots of insecurity in music. Um, sometimes I would think when I'm looking at an artist and I'm wondering if they're an artist or not, I'm trying to size them up because I really like something about them. If they have a big ego, if they're insecure, if they're, uh, um, worried about what someone else is doing i'm like you're gonna make a great artist because so those are some of the things i think go into it (laughs) to being a complete artist somebody that doesn't have those inadequacies isn't driven as much sometimes because they're they're calm and collected about stuff Hmm, that's interesting yeah Yeah, it is man interesting take yeah (laughs) <laughs> I have to be a psychologist after being this long. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, you know, I just try and, um, I try and do my own thing and I've been doing it for a while. And um, like I said, I got into um, mixing my own stuff because I had to, like I couldn't afford to, you know, go out and um, I, I write a lot. Well, I used to write a lot more, but, you know, not every song is going to be used, but, you know, I don't want to waste money either. Like, you know, fleshing it out and then, 
and then say, okay, well, I just spent, you know, 3000 on this or 5,000, but I'm not going to use it. I mean, so, um, I mean, that's part of it. So I think where I'm going with that is, I mean, that's kind of liberating because you can, you know, if you're doing your own stuff, you can do more, not to say that you have to, I mean, I worked with engineers where they would, you know, you'd send them a mix and then they would work on it from there. You'd say, this is kind of what I'm looking for. And then they'll go and, um, dress it up, you know, or do their thing with it. So, um, I guess there, I guess there's different ways. Is that producing? What's that? Is that, would you consider him a producer or a mix engineer? A mix engineer. Okay. Well, mix Um, engineers should bring their trick to the table. Otherwise they would all be the same. Otherwise I wouldn't hire one mix engineer for one project and another mix engineer for another one because they bring different tricks. Like um, I hire one guitar player because I know he has these things in his toolbox and I wouldn't dare hire him for this because I need a guy who has these things in his toolbox. And the producing mixing thing is a lot like, there's another thing I, I tell artists who want to be a writer. They just, they won't listen to an outside song. And I go, what do you want to be? What did you come here to be? I want to be an artist. Uh, you want to, you want buses? Yeah. You want the tours and the, all that? Yeah. I go, do you want to put that on hold until your songwriting catches up? Or do you want to just go ahead and move at your own pace as an artist and let songwriting catch up as it does? And they think about it and they go, and you almost have to say, I want my artistry to take off when it's ready. You don't want to hold that back. And I don't want to hold my demos back until I learn to mix. It's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> for me. So yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. So I have to figure out what is the impossible part of the equation because there's too many parts now. Um, there's, I've got to market it. I've got to, you know, there's PR, publicity, marketing, and advertising. Those four things used to be different, and now they're part of a Venn diagram. They all intersect just a little bit, and they're all really hard. Uh, but suddenly they're on the artist's plate to take care of. And um, and it's possible. By the way, Skinner's second helping record was transformative to me mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, I remember yeah, my eight-track was now in my Nova. And <laughs> um, I'm riding around listening to Skinner in my car. I loved I loved those early Skinner records. Yeah, the first, first and second album, because they, they recorded... Uh... Sweet Home of Alabama while they were working on the first album or they just finished the first album. Yeah. Some, somewhere in there. So that was already recorded. And then they went on the road and came back and then finished this second helping. But uh, Ed yeah. King on guitar. Yeah. As a kid, I didn't know what I was listening to. Um, I knew it was Southern rock and I knew it sounded nothing like ZZ Top and it sounded nothing like the Almond Brothers. Um, and I've never been an Almond Brothers fan, but Skinner, however, yeah. knocked me out. And I think it's because they were more of a rock band than the Almond Brothers were. And I was just a rock kid. And um, it's it wasn't a magic union that couldn't have happened. Like, um, I mean, what is um, like like Sting last night? 
the fact that he was a hit radio artist with a drummer that far out of whack and a guitar player playing something that far out of whack and getting hit records was a perfect storm of that voice riding with those musicians who refused to play the normal part. And it worked. I don't think Skinner was quite that magic, but I think there was some magic that Alan Collins and Gary yeah, Rossington yeah. and Ronnie Van Zant and Billy Powell all came together at one time. Billy was an extremely talented player. Um, Alan was a rock god. Ed <laughs> King, I didn't even know Ed was in the band half the time, but but <laughs> but I know how good he was. And um yeah, well, he's he does some of that guitar work like on Sweet Home. Yeah, guitar. Yeah, solo. I know all that now. Yeah, I know yeah. now. I know the history of the guitars, the actual guitars they played, and who they bought them from, and who owns them now. Really? I'm so into, <laughs> okay, I don't. I don't go that deep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ed King's Les Paul is. Um, it was at a guitar store on 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 Eighth uh, Avenue, and now Jason Isbell has it. Huh. Uh, but the less ball that he played in Skinner is that's where it is. And I was just asking somebody, um, we know where his Explorer is. I was asking somebody yesterday, where is Alan Collins 58 Explorer that he bought from Robert Johnson in Memphis? Really? And, uh, yeah. Wow. I so it, it's, um, so I, I do love that band. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I felt the same way when I heard him for the first time. Um, I remember we were, I was a teenager, like we were trying to get bands together and stuff here and there. And, uh, man, I heard that. And I was like, wow, we got to do this. <laughs> I went on to write and produce with them later on. And, um, I think I'm may have been just about one of the last people to record Billy Powell on a record. Really? Um, yeah. Cause, uh, there wasn't another record out at the time after I recorded him, um, and a lot of what Billy did was with the band, but I also had him come back by himself and just me and him get in the studio and him play parts <laughs> for the record after the fact. But um, wow. yeah, the um, music is different. And once I realized that was always going to be something that changes, <laughs> um, it, it, it just always is. And, and it doesn't always go through great incarnations. Um, and when I say that, I mean where quality goes down. It can be music that I don't like and that might even hurt my ear a little bit. But if it's done well, mixed well, and there's a group of people that love it, that is, that is good to me. Um, but every once in a while, stuff goes through something that just, you, you know, there's some something at the heart of it that's not really good <laughs> not true and um and that usually has a limited uh a limited time especially these days nothing has to stay in power it used to because um, the attention span of um the z and um generation z and generation i guess x um they 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 were short you know I think our Napster generation is now in their forties. You know, there's like eight years of kids that will never think most things like intellectual property are worth anything because they got it for free. Yeah. But again, they're in their forties. We don't have to worry about them now, but, the, but the ones we're worrying about now, they're going to be gone in five minutes and we're going to have the next group. 
<laughs> and, and, and until something has staying power, um, like kids now, they aren't one genre specific. Um, and I noticed it happening with some of my kids because they could take the remote and sluggishly move through MTV, MTV1, MTV2, VH1, VH1, two, GAC, CMT. They could change the channel and suddenly be in a different genre. And that started making the thing seamless. And then you fast forward. So that was like 1998, 95. <laughs> and you fast forward to where we are now, where 10 years ago, it became so seamless that a kid could be in a different, in 15 genres in a, a finite of a second. Yeah. Um, and, and the other three kids in the car were too. So that means they were all experiencing what each one was starting to get into because there wasn't one income stream coming through the dashboard. Everybody had to share one income stream. We are listening to country because this is Bob's car. <laughs> but now you got headphones and three kids in the car from different families. So there's four or five income streams, you know, coming out the hood of that car on different genres. So it, it became seamless and they're here. And uh, that's, that's probably a good thing in the long run yeah. to have people that are multi um, multi well-read in, in different musics. They'll land on something that's their favorite, but you know, they're like me. They know a lot of music. I find a great pleasure in it myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I like uh, different styles of music. Um, I think my main thing is like alternative um and in in the alternative uh, music that I listen to, that goes from different, that var varies in different degrees. You know, it's it's um, original, like you know, it's not not necessarily formulaic. You know, they everybody comes up with something a little different and a different take on something. You know, mm -hmm. on on an acoustic track or or. Uh, uh, but yeah, some of the things that I'm hearing now, um, I don't want to get too far into this, but um, pop with pop music, um, like mi trying to mix it myself, I found that where in the 90s with dig digitized music, um, it was the, the object was to get clean and clear, right? And um because you can hear it in the recordings they're like pristine recordings you know right. clarity right and and even like when i listen I, I like jazz too so i listened to charlie parker on a cd and i heard stuff that i couldn't hear before you know uh so it was amazing but then there's like this kind of counter culture well see it's that was seeping in and it's it's here now it's like you get distort like people are adding distortion to two sounds so it could be a kick drum or um obviously guitar but um what else yeah they're... yeah i mean i guess just the mix in general like they'll add a little what people were trying to get away from they're adding it and i kind of think it's the rap influence um could be because well like a street influence because it's like when i was growing up 
you know, I didn't have the best guitar to get started, but at least I had a guitar. Um, you know, maybe you get kids with uh, drum kits and, or let's, I think the best example is uh, electronic keyboard. So I was writing a song in the, well, way back. I don't want to say when, right. <laughs> probably in the eighties sometime. And so I came in and I came in with this part and I had a keyboard player in my band and uh, we were playing mo mostly covers back then, but I, I was, was trying to get, we were doing some of my original stuff, but um, so I came in and I played this part for him. He goes, Oh, you know, that's, you need, you need a Korg on that or something. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I think, I think this sounds good. And he's like, ah, it sounds cheap, you know? So, I mean, I, that's kind of what I'm hearing. It's like these elements or people are like, Hey, you know, that sound isn't that bad. <laughs> like I like it. So, you know, I'm going to keep it. And I kind of think it's like that kind of influence. Um, but definitely, you know, distortion, um, it's called saturation, right? I think. Yeah. Uh, they, they, it's, uh, it's on, they're using it on all kinds of instruments too. And, and sometimes right now, even if with whatever the instruments do or don't have on it, they'll just come up with some sort of distorted noise just to run all the way through the song from top to bottom, just to fill up space so that your <laughs> ear is tricked into feeling something going on that really has no note value. It's just going. Yeah. So it's like, it's kind of replacing what vinyl used to do and what tape like a track would have a hiss and yeah. right inherent. And then, depending on how, how many times you played your, your vinyl, you know, it would get noisier and noisier as it, as time went right. on. Right. So right. I, I kind of, that's, that's my take on it. Um, but, um, I think so some I, of the I, things are accidental. I think every, I, I mean, gosh, 12, 15 years ago, I, I remember programming some drum tracks for a guy in New York. And he said, Trey, they're too clean. They've got to, you got to make those things dirty, run them through something to make them dirty. Mm -hmm. um, so that started then and then put getting the vocals distorted. Some things I think were accidents because of some grunge band in the nineties couldn't get anything clean. And so someone else thought it was cool and then did it. Um, I, I would, I would bet to this day that do you believe in love by share? Do you believe in life after love? That thing? Yeah. I believe the tuning gag was probably a mistake. Huh. And someone goes, Hey, I like that. And now and then right after that, everybody started using the auto tune <laughs> gag as yeah. a trick. Because up until then, we'd done everything we could to make sure it didn't make a sound. Yeah. Um, and then that happened, and I think, you know like Ronnie Van Zant saying, turn it up. That was just on one of his tracks. He couldn't hear the <laughs> headphones. It wasn't intentional. <laughs> so I think some of it, but once someone thinks something's fashionable, like even playing out of pocket, um, some of the hip hop records, they literally, they don't add or subtract a beat. They just play so out of pocket that, um, it almost seems like there is a beat missed. It just kind of speeds up for a second. And I don't know if that originally happened on purpose or if somebody had a hit record with bad programming where they just let a couple of things slip by. But 
because it's easy to start pulling in loops and then playing and then playing and then building a loop and find out you haven't matched something hmm. because maybe the original you loop pulled you, you pulled in was swinging at 15% and you programmed everything tight. So, you know, I think that could happen to cause a fad because it's super hip not to be in pocket right now hmm. on some versions of that kind of stuff. That's why I've really liked writing film and TV is because um, no one can tell me what I'm writing about that day is bad or wrong because every genre fits in one of thousands of slots wow. across TV every day. Um, so literally I can just hit a bunch of buttons and whatever instrument I lay my hands on here, I'll go, that can work because it can <laughs> <laughs> just write a song with it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. yeah, because I just heard something. Well, there was a show on Big Big Little Lies, I think, with uh, Reese Witherspoon and. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I know the show. And and um, the song, the the title track, was. Um, I heard it and I'm like, wow, like, where do they get this thing? Cause it sounds really noisy and distorted. I was like, this sounds like my garage band recordings from, you know, when I was a teenager, like distorted microphone. Cause yeah. you had to turn the PA up as loud as you could and scream into the mic to be heard. And, um, so it just had that kind of quality to it. So to me, it sounded like a demo tape and then somebody put some, um, better production behind it. So when the, maybe I, I forget if there's strings in it or keyboard, there's definitely keyboards Right. Maybe when the keys or strings come in. Um, they're like very professional sounding, but the record, the, the uh, main part of the track, uh, the artist part sounds like it was a demo. And uh, right. I mean, to me, so, but I was wondering like, like you were saying, like, were they actually looking for that or is that just accidental? You know, somebody said, like you were saying before, like, I like the demo, like send me the demo. <laughs> right. Know? I swear to God, I think <laughs> where some fads come from. Yeah. That uh, it gets on a project where it, where the project actually has a team behind it and they put it out. And the next thing you know, everybody has to have a couple of songs with that gag on it. Yeah. Um, most gags are intentional, but, Little things like that are so easy to, to do accidentally anyway. Um, I, can, I can't count the times during in the early days of tuning vocals, we would hit a spot and somebody would overdo it to where you could hear it. And we'd do everything, we'd move hell or high water to get that down where you couldn't hear it <laughs> until the share record. <laughs> and then <laughs> and it was out. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. The um, one thing I've noticed in film and TV is what was that show, The Dysfunctional Family, that all lived in one big, shabby three-story uh, house? Shameless? Was that Shameless. Shameless. Shameless had a lot of distorted stuff on it. Oh, and it yeah. went from grungy rock to some vintage stuff, but a lot of hip-hop. Um, and that became a way to mix a song. I had a few things that an engineer sent me, and I said, you know what? Listen to these three songs off of this show. I need this mixed to dirty up a little bit it's a little too pristine 
And um, so, you know, I would expect right now I could pull those mixes up and I probably can't use them for anything, but I do have the originals. <laughs> and, you know, that's a thing. That's like when the Lumineers, I think they broke really quickly. If I'm not mistaken, it was a TV appearance or something that broke the Lumineers. And that was recorded in a garage in East Nashville. Well, the next thing you know, that's a big sound. And oh, yeah. everybody was trying to record the way the Lumineers sounded in a garage in East Nashville. Yeah. Um, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, the stomp clap, all that. Um, and, and those things are going to, they're going to happen and they're going to ride out and, and then there'll be something else, you know. Um, but the something else has come along a lot faster now because there's so many people making music and so many people getting a chance to be heard that I, that's one reason I don't think the fads last as long. Mm. And, um, and then just the attention span. I've got a daughter that's an artist and she just, she's 21 and she, would, she wouldn't be caught dead doing what she was doing a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's already left that thing um, and is doing something else. There's <clears throat> um, too many ways to get influenced. I mean, I was influenced by the things I could walk across the room and put the needle on, which is why I listened to the whole side of an album, because I was too, I was a teenager. I was too lazy to go over there and lift the needle and move it to hear the song I wanted every time. So I just sat through the whole B side of Abbey Road and, you know, grew another limb as a result, <laughs> you know, what a record. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So we we're talking about TV and movies. Um, I see uh, Emmy sitting behind you. Oh yeah. 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 That's awesome. Th that was um, a score guy who was doing scores for TV. He called me uh, cause he was a good friend of mine and, um, said that he got a, a call about something that's really not a score. It's a song and he has a shot at putting something in for it. And, um, man, this was a Thursday or a Friday. And he's like, I really got to send something to him next week. So he and I spent the weekend working on a song and then <clears throat> he's right. He's programming it while we write. So, you know, by Monday we are ready for a vocal. And we put a singer on it. And I don't remember if it was that week or the next week, but it had been approved. And the next time the nominations come up, we were on it. Wow. That was the first time I asked, I was said, I need you to write something for this TV hmm. thing. And um, then we did another one the next year and we got nominated again, but we didn't win. Hmm. And, um, and then I've been just lucky, you know, I've had a, couple network trailers and then a couple of those would spin off into a featured use. Like I had an American Idol network trailer that ran for four weeks, paid really well. And then for a fraction of the payment, VH1 used it for something. And then Biggest Loser, then they used it for the night the families come back to see how much their loved ones lost. And that one paid pretty good, but there's just because it made $30 on one day didn't mean it couldn't make $5 the next day with another company across the street. It's hmm. Any price is bad and any price is good. You just take them. Yeah. 
And so I never paid attention much to film and TV. Um, and I probably had four or 500 uses <clears throat> on different TV shows. Um, a couple closing credits on movies, but um, I guess a couple of years ago, I started actually trying to get syncs and um, like everybody else on the planet. Uh, <laughs> and I haven't done anybody any better than everybody else on the planet. Um, other than the fact every once in a while, I've got that Emmy strategically placed where it's not a focus, but it's in the photo on LinkedIn. So if I hit a music supervisor and they answer it, or at least look at it like they might answer it. If I don't mention the Emmy and it just sits there, they might go, well, <laughs> at least this guy knows something. <laughs> I'll look at his email. I might not answer it, but I'll look at it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's amazing. Um, because that's probably something you never thought of, right? I never really. No, I didn't really think of it. Yeah. I was still chasing records um, all over town and everywhere else at the time. Uh, I knew this buddy of mine made a good living scoring a couple of shows, but I didn't, um, I didn't really even know the difference between a score guy and a, a song. I, I thought I didn't know it was lucky that he could get his, a shot at a song. I think because they were at the end and someone just brought this combination of a song up that suddenly he got, they just needed a song from wherever they could find it. And so they weren't going to their usual sources. They were going to everybody they know knew. Mm -hmm. And, um, and um, so that, you know, that, that was really interesting. And I've, I've spent the last two years just looking around the planet for left of center artists that work good for TV. Um, not, not some that I can get and go, let's write with your voice for TV. Um, I just find artists that already lend themselves that way by the nature that they have. And then, um, and I started this in March of 20. It was like, I know we're not fixing to do anything in the music business for quite some time. We're fixing to be yeah. shut down. Yeah. And um, I literally, I was in LA writing the first day an American died of COVID. I was out there writing with Duff and uh, he and I started talking about it. Like we're just reading about this thing in the paper, <laughs> crazy COVID thing. And man, I came home and just retooled and I just searched the whole world for uh, artists and I found four or five, seven, maybe on the outside that I could, uh, work with on that level. And most of them had never co-written, much less co-written on Zoom. Um, I find it harder to get a young Nashville writer to write on Zoom than I do a stranger in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that is. I think it's because the 25 year old writers in Nashville are, they're bulletproof right now. And they just, you know, they, they only do things one way. And, but yeah, get a stranger to write with you on Zoom. And then in most cases, I end up telling them where to get an interface. You know, I'm not going to meet you for a long time. So you need to find a way to do vocals at home on tracks that I send you. And they do, they go spend three or 400 bucks. I teach them how not to distort and how to get clean tracks. And that's all they need to know. And I've put out stuff many times with people I've not met yet. We completely 
I wrote this morning with an artist that I'm in love with in Canada. We put a couple things out. We've written um, 10 or 15 songs and I haven't met her. Hmm. And um, we really like what we wrote today. We busted through another wall and created a little something that's different for her that she likes. So um, different is always what I'm aiming for if possible. Yeah, I think um, I mentioned that before. Like um, I just try and when I write, I just try and make things a little different with each um, each endeavor, you know, each each new song. I'm getting like a lot of sun here. So yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a weird video, but <laughs> part one. Um, if you're pitching yeah, we'll a mainstream, like if you if you had a tip sheet right now, who's cutting in Nashville? and you were to look through it for me, I would go, well, there's, I could pitch to 12 guys right now and about seven or eight girls. And I would look through my catalog and go, man, I think this would be awesome for this guy. And I'm thinking about the song and I'm thinking about like a producer or an A&R person. I'm thinking with this body of work, what he's done this next, this, if he would do this song, this would happen. And nine out of 10 times, they're going to pass on that song because they're not looking to shake anything up. They're looking to do hits on this record that are just like the hits on the last record. All right. So yeah. pitching something different, it would have to be different and just um, me and Bobby McGee, great. <laughs> or uh different in a campy way um like achy breaky heart we all remember when that happened and yeah. that was one of the weirdest <laughs> things ever because nobody in the music business that i know of really thought that song had much quality but combined with a really different artist one that we hadn't seen anything like before that that made the stars line up just to a point that we're still swallowing Cyrus's left and right because they're so damn good and they're everywhere, Yeah, you know, because of that one unique song. But most of the time they're not going to do something different if they don't want to take a chance on shaking things up. Um, Miranda Lambert is a, in Nashville is a perfect example of an artist who is not afraid of shaking things up. She changes things from one album to the next drastically. She's even got a duet with a pop singer on this record. And it's in the track in essence is a dance track. And she's a traditionalist on, on any given day. She's just Patty Loveless and Randy Travis, <laughs> but she goes out of her way to do things that are different lyrically and from a production standpoint. And you'd have to strap a set of headphones on to see just how different some things are on her last couple of records that make her nothing like a safe country artist. Um, and Randy Travis was another one. Um, there was a, I can't remember the guy's name that wrote all, a lot of his first hits. Uh, and they have followed a certain stream of continuity and they were spot on traditional country. And when Randy started cutting my songs, he broke the mold. He went to another direction. And they were all completely different from what he usually does. And people were surprised, but they all went number one. And that gave him a different chapter in his book. 
wow. a different color that no one saw coming. And it, they could have radio could have easily said, we're not buying it and not played him. <clears throat> like when Leanne Rhymes tried some pop and Faith Hill tried some pop, radio shut them down on day one. Um, again, that's a sign of the times. There were girls trying to add a little pop and Randy Travis was a God and he was a man and he commanded a lot of, of, uh, time and patience in radio. So when they heard him do something weird, like my song, whisper my name, they went, you know, this is weird for Randy, but let's give him a minute and listen to this all the way through. And, um, Again, that speaks of some of the horrors of country radio that we still exist that still exists now with their relationship to women. But um, <clears throat> different is great if you can roll the dice and you're different works. Boy, if it doesn't, it's just another pass. Sometimes you have to sneak it up on them where they don't really <laughs> realize it's different. You know, you do something really different in the chord change. Um, and then kind of gloss it over with something else that gets their attention like squirrel. <laughs> when all along you went to a really strange chord, you might've been hopped out of key for two bars and back in. And it's what makes the audience, they don't know what you did. They don't know keys, but it makes them jump right there and go, hell yeah. And whatever <laughs> makes them go, hell yeah. It might be something different that you tried. Um, And you drive yourself crazy trying to guess it. You just yeah. have to do a bunch of all of them. And um, then when you're pitching, uh, again, I'm not a good pitcher. I don't pitch well, um, which is why someone's always pitching for me. Um, you, you, um, you have to know to pitch them the right thing and not the best thing you have. I always try to pitch the best song I have, which – experience tells me they don't need the best song I have. They need a song. They need the best song I have for the need they have. Okay. They don't need the best song. They need this. And I've got that. It's just in a different folder and I don't pitch it. I pitch the best one and they pass. <laughs> <laughs> so it, the man, there is a trick an art and a science to every bit of this. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, what kind of reminds me of, um, I think it was a Saturday night live. Yeah, it was a Saturday night live skit. And uh, I think it was Dana Carvey. And um, he was supposed to be playing an artist up, up and coming artist. And they're they have him in A&R room or whatever, I guess, and um, to, to bring him in to check him out. Uh, and he's playing music. And then he's I don't know if you remember this. Though. He did this thing called Chopping Broccoli. He's singing the song. I don't know if you remember that. No, I don't. But um, yeah, the song is he, he's singing about chopping broccoli and he's going through all these motions of like different song dynamics. Yeah. And um, they're asking him, well, how do you describe yourself? He's like, oh, I'm a little like this. And then if the people liked it, then he would go a little bit farther. <laughs> so yeah. every, he was giving them like, you know, 10 different conflicting. Right. Um, influences about the music you know and they're like oh i love that one you know like so then he'd feed a little more in that direction yeah, <laughs> yeah. right he was just like throwing it out there so they ended up signing him because you know, <laughs> he pitched he pitched well but um yeah so that that's you know what you're talking about that kind of reminds me of that like um trying to figure out 
how to do it. And, but, um, let's see. So, um, yeah, you've given us some great advice here. Um, I really appreciate you coming out. Sure, man. Um, coming out today to, to do this. And uh, I would really like to, uh, dig in a little deeper with songwriting another time. Okay. Um, we don't have to know all your secrets, but you know, you, you sound um, like you have a lot, a lot to tell and um, you might help somebody along the way here. Sure. Um, and then uh, you, you kind of touched on social media, but um, yeah, so maybe we'll, I'll get into some of these other questions, just a few um, generalizations of music today. You kind of touched on it but I'd like to get in a little deeper and get your perspective. Okay. But um, yeah, is there anything else that you would like to add or you have uh, any promotion that you'd like to do like um, um, upcoming music or? No, not really. If you have one specific question, you still want to ask about something, I'll answer one more. Um, you kind of touched on it like here and there, like the state of music today. And we talked about distortion and stuff like that, but um you mentioned Napster. So um, this podcast is about helping like indie musicians uh, on their journey, um, maybe how to be seen and how to be get a, a gig where you can, you're, you're going to have some people there. Um, so I mean, one of the things that, that you mentioned was, um, you know, the artist is responsible for publicity and marketing and this and that, which is, you know, wrapped up in social media. Um, how do you feel about that? Um, and, um, you know, like I think right now, TikTok is pretty hot, uh, for, you know, um, releasing music. So I'm actually going to be putting a song up, but, um, just because you put a song up, doesn't mean you're going to get any traction. Um, and, um, I also spoke to somebody, I think a producer maybe a couple of weeks ago and they, mentioned that one of their songs was placed multiple times. Um, and you know, something that they didn't expect that they weren't even going to pitch. And you may have mentioned something like that too. Um, so, I mean, how do you feel like about that for the artist today? Um, trying to, you know, stitch everything together and, and then on top of that, like music wise, and then having to, um, take care of your social media. I mean, like if an artist is total um, DIY. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems to me right now, of course, that the single is important. Um, and then a, a video or several video experiences along with a regular video for every song. Um, and then an artist that has a budget for a real promo plan um, is the best way. Uh, otherwise, you have to do complete free DIY, uh, do-it-yourself tricks. That um, I've talked to companies that I've hired to do promo for an artist single release. And I've asked them before, when you're hiring a streaming company, to promote it at the streaming companies, how do you tell a good one from a bad one? And these people hire, this is like a publicity firm, hires them every day. They said, honest to God, Trey, we don't know. We don't know if spending 
5,000 a month for three months is going to get you added to any critical playlist or if um, spending 200 a month, we don't know because we can't see any more evidence that one works better or worse than the other. Uh, you get more meetings and more chances and you get, you get your email opened more often with five grand a month, but we have no evidence that shows that gets you more spins. Um, so the answer I would give someone knowing that is spend 5,000 a month. Well, to, if, if that's the price, uh, that seems to be kind of a, a going figure for promotion for 90 days for one single. Um, it, it um, I mean, it just for the average person that has a rich uncle or uh, has a real good day gig or whatever. Um, and I think that all the ads that you buy, I think all those ads can work. Um, I think a, a presence on one of the uh, social medias has to be great. You have to have one platform that's great. If you ignore one because you don't like it or whatever, the other one needs to be great. Um, and right now, TikTok is the one and YouTube is the music business. Hmm. I think YouTube is the music business. You think and so? Think, yeah. yeah. And I think the way you get big numbers on TikTok is be big on, I mean, on YouTube is be big on TikTok. Hmm. Um, Instagram and places like that are just ways to advertise and tell people that that you, are, you have a reach to. Um, I mean, in the last 10 days, TikTok has, un, has unveiled their record label. They are a record label officially. Wow. And, um, you know, they're, they're hiring A&R people in three different cities right now saying your job is to go search out, discover and develop new talent. Wow. Um, and I don't remember what trade I read that in, but I read it in the last week. Um, and each, each thing was in a quote. That's exactly what they're telling these new hires is to go find new, new talent. Um, That's interesting. I didn't, I, I haven't heard that. Now I do know that having I always have several artists in development and I have for 25 years, I do know the artist that um, works at it like their very oxygen depends on it, do mucho better, way better than the artist who's casual about it. Um, and they could be shoveling uh, yellow snow and they're going to do better with it than the artist who does nothing. Um, you mean just in general or for, um, you mean for social media, for uh, TikTok? Everything. Everything. Um, I mean, if, if the artist, I know one right now who works day and night at it. She babysits during the day. She does interviews while the kids are on a nap. She does videos while they're at the pool. I mean, everything she does is that. Then when the people get home, she goes and does an early gig somewhere at 7 o'clock. And then she does a late round at 10 o'clock somewhere else. And then she has a right the next day. And then she plays uh, the foray of an of a hotel in downtown Nashville for three hours cover songs. And then she babysits and does it every single day. TikToks three times a day. And did and she did this also for a couple of years. And one day a hair, she tried a hair video and she went viral, you know, six, seven hundred thousand people in two days. And so 
that's one of the things that she stuck with. And then every three or four of those, she'd put a music video in. Well, now she's on a TV show. She's on a show at MTV. She's having her songs played on CMT and she doesn't have a record deal or a publishing deal. Wow. That makes her boss. Yeah. So she hasn't had a big investor of any kind, but she stays in your face. She has oodles of personality. She's average looking. She's not a, a Carrie Underwood or any kind of big belting singer. She's just a Sheryl Crow country singer, which is a lot. That's extremely yeah. talented, but it's not a flash pony, you know? And I know some other artists 10 times as talented that take it casual. They'll do a couple things a month and that's not going to get it. You're going to have to be Justin Bieber and, and go viral on a fluke to make it without putting 110% effort into it. I mean, like if you don't promote and you don't share and post, you run out of oxygen. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what it seems like. It's very daunting. <laughs> it is so, very daunting. Yeah. I, I'm not going to take that away from it. <laughs> so, but uh, well, that's that's great stuff, man. I really appreciate right, it. Dude. Well, um, go ahead. Hit me up if you ever want to do something more concentrated and on a songwriter one where you're going to have some specific questions for me. It probably would be cool if you could um, have some sort of uh, do a promo where you 10 lucky people get to be on the Zoom and ask questions. Wow. There's an that'd idea. Be, that'd be all <laughs> your thing. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, after you do whatever you do with this, if it gets you any, if it gets a good response, then you could throw something up like that. That way you'd have a couple of people ask some raw questions that come out of nowhere. And then you could ask the ones that, um, you think those 10 people want to hear, including you. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Good yeah, idea. <laughs> Um, All right, dude. Well, I appreciate, appreciate the chance, and uh, let me know when it airs or whatever. Oh, yeah, I really appreciate it, man. I'm 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 honored to uh, speak with you because um, you know, you're you're you have some great success there, and uh, enviable success, I should say. <laughs> and uh, you know, well, I appreciate really, you, Pat. Really nice of you doing that. Thank Stay in you. touch, man. All right, See we'll you. do. Thanks. Take care. For more information about Trey Bruce. You can go to treybruce.com on social media under the handle Music Love War. For more information about Pat Foran, you can look up Pat Foran Music on the web or go to patforanmusic.com. You can find me on Instagram, pat.foran and also on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Get Labeled Indie Music Roadmap with Pat Foran.